scripture passage this morning is Exodus 20, 1 through 21 for Pastor Charlie's sermon. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner, sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is, give, has, is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you are a holy God, a mighty God, a strong God, a gracious God, a saving God. And how I pray as I've been praying, Lord, all last evening and this morning, I pray that you would bring us to the mountain now. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see your glory and your power and your holiness. I pray that you'd open our ears that we might hear your words. And I pray that you'd open our hearts that we might receive what you have to do in our lives. You are a consuming fire and you're here not just to tell us a story, but to draw near to us and consume the dross in us that we might be better prepared to have fellowship with you. So, Father, please come now and do for us, by the cross of Jesus Christ, what we could never do for ourselves. And we trust you for this, Lord, in the strong and in the mighty and the gracious name of Jesus. Amen. For 430 years, the people of Israel lived as subjects of the pharaohs of Egypt. And the longer that their time in Egypt went along, that subjection turned more and more toward slavery, as you know. When the time was full, the Lord who calls his name Yahweh, which means I am, the Lord sent a deliverer to his people, for his people, 
to confront Pharaoh and to release them from their slavery. But no matter how strong Moses' pleas for mercy were, Pharaoh would not humble himself. Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go because God himself had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the reason that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart was because he designed to gain great glory for himself in all the earth, not in just the land of Egypt, by showing that Pharaoh, who claimed to be God, was not God, in fact, but was just a man. And by showing that the Egyptian religion, which was the dominant religion on the earth at that time, was nothing but a false hope and a false religion. And so the Lord struck the Egyptians once, and then twice, and then five times, and then nine times, and then finally He struck them a tenth time. And this tenth blow from the Lord came with a very strong hand, for He took the lives of every firstborn male in Egypt, whether a man or a beast, from the greatest to the least. And the only ones He spared this fate were the Israelites, who had bowed in submission to Him and taken the blood of the Lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house, so that when the angel of the Lord came through the land to strike the firstborn, He would pass over those homes and spare those homes from the death of their firstborn male children. With this tenth and final plague, which we call the Passover, the heart of Pharaoh was finally softened and he let the people of Israel go out into the desert after 430 years of subjection and then slavery. But soon enough they reached the shore of the Red Sea and Pharaoh had a change of mind and he pursued them with all of his might and with the might of his army. And there the people of Israel found themselves stuck between the shore of an ocean and, and, a, and a mighty army behind them. This circumstance was not a surprise to the Lord. In fact, it had been orchestrated by the Lord. The Lord Himself had stuck them in between a rock and a hard place so that He could once more gain glory for Himself by parting that Red Sea and making a way for escape right through the midst of it and using that same sea to destroy the mightiest army on the face of the earth. And the Lord did just that. He caused a very strong east wind to blow all night long. And in the morning, Israel found their way of escape. And later that morning, the army of Pharaoh was completely destroyed. And having thus freed his people from their mighty oppressors, the mightiest nation on the face of the earth at that time, the Lord led Israel into the desert. Well, you remember that he gave them three opportunities to grow in faith. He was trying to teach them to look to Him in all circumstances and to value Him above the greatest things of this life or at least the most needful things of this life, namely bread and water. And He was saying to them, Israel, men and women do, do not live by bread alone, but by every mouth, word that comes out of the mouth of God. So even when you find yourself in a desert without sustenance, look to me, believe in me, trust in me. You see, God was trying to teach them how to live by faith, how to walk by faith, how to keep their eyes fixed on Him in any and all circumstances. The Israelites, though, didn't see the goodness of the Lord in these things and the purposes of the Lord, and so they grumbled against Him. But this did not keep God from accomplishing His purposes in their lives and teaching them how to walk by faith. In the third scene where God was trying to teach them this, He brought them to a place called Rephidim. And when they were there camping, you remember that an army came from the north. They were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and they came fiercely against Israel. And for the first time, Israel had to rise up and literally take up swords and fight. 
And you'll remember the lesson God tried to teach them there for Moses ascended to the top of a high hill over the battlefield where everyone could see him. And he stretched out his hand with the staff of God in one hand and he lifted up his heart toward Yahweh, the God of Israel. And whenever he lifted up his heart and his hands toward the Lord and inspired the people to look toward the Lord, the Israel would win the battle. But whenever Moses became weary and his arms drooped down and his heart fell from the Lord and the people forgot what they were fighting for, then defeat came upon Israel. When the arms were lifted up toward Yahweh, victory. When the eyes, the heart, the hands were, were drooped down away from Yahweh, then there was defeat. And so by the grace of this great God and by the help of his brother and his brother-in-law, you'll remember that Moses sat on a rock and put out his arms and one of his brothers got under this arm and the other got under this arm and he held his hands up in that way all the way until the night fell. And in this way, Israel won their first battle fairly decisively. But the real point of this battle is that they learned that the Lord alone is their victory. When we fix our eyes on the Lord, we have the victory. When we let our eyes droop off of the Lord and onto our circumstances, we suffer defeat. This was the great, great lesson God was trying to teach them. In chapter 18, then, he essentially taught them the same lesson when they were now seeking for wisdom, for justice in society. And without going into all the details, what he taught them was, look to me, look to the Lord. Not only do I have the ability to provide for you in the desert, not only do I have power for war, but I have wisdom for justice in society. And when you have practical needs and practical conflicts between one another, lift your eyes up toward me and I will help you in all things, beloved. God was trying to teach His people to walk by faith. This leads us to Exodus 19, if you'll turn your attention there now. Again, I, I won't be reading much of the text, but from time to time I will be referring to some verses. As I just said, the Israelites had been camped out in a place called Rephidim through these last three parts of the scenes of Exodus 17 and 18. But when the time was right, the Lord moved them from there a little farther to the south into a place called the wilderness of Sinai, farther away from the promised land. And Moses tells us there in chapter 19, verse 1, that they entered into the wilderness of Sinai precisely on the day of the third new moon after escaping from Egypt. Now, that probably means close to nothing to us because we don't live by a lunar calendar. We live by a solar calendar. But anyone who lives by a lunar calendar would understand what that means. That means that on the 48th day after the Passover, Israel entered into the wilderness of Sinai and came very near to Mount Sinai itself. That will become important in just a moment, so remember that. They came into Sinai on the 48th day after the Passover. Once they were settled in that place... Moses went up on Mount Sinai, which is called the mountain of God sometimes. Sometimes just Mount Sinai. Sometimes just the mountain. And while he was there, the Lord called out to him and said this in verses 3 through 6. He said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now let me pause there, because that is a fulfillment now of what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 3.12. Do you remember when God was calling Moses, and God and Moses was, was rejecting the call of God in his life, just coming up with one excuse after another as to why he could not be the prophet of God sent to deliver Israel? And the Lord at one point said to Moses, Listen, here's the sign for you that I have called you. 
When I have delivered my people out of Egypt, you will come to this very mountain, and you together with my people will serve and worship me. And now, here on this day, beloved, on the 48th day after the Passover, the Lord fulfilled His word to Moses and brought His people out and brought them to the place of worship at the foot of this mountain, just as He had promised. The Lord is a faithful, faithful God. Whatever He says, He will surely do. Now look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. Beloved, these words are God's covenant with Israel. These verses contain legal language through which the Lord was demanding specific things of Israel and promising specific things to Israel. They are a legal covenant between God and His people. First of all, the Lord demanded that Israel obey His voice and keep His covenant. He wanted His people to be faithful to Him. He wanted fidelity. He wanted them to serve Him and to serve Him alone. Listen to Him and to keep His commandments alone. He was calling for heartfelt faithfulness. Second, you'll see that if they would only do this, if they would only live in love and fidelity to the Lord their God, that He would take them as His treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation for Himself. And I submit to you that this word treasured, when the Lord says that this people will be a treasured possession, this means that the Lord was not just making an unfeeling agreement with the people of Israel, but rather that He was entering into a covenant with them and that He had great passion about it. I submit to you that verses 5 and 6 are essentially a proposal of marriage from God Almighty to the people of Israel. He was wanting to enter into a covenant that very much mirrors marriage and very much has to do with what marriage is about in our day. The Lord was saying out, that out of all the nations of the earth, He would choose just this one nation. And she would be to Him a treasured possession. And He would take her as His own. And He would guide her and protect her and lead her and bring her into the fullness of the purposes that He had designed for her by the strength of His hand and for the glory of His name. Even though all the nations of the earth belong to God, the Lord was offering to marry Israel, if you will, to take her as a treasured possession and then when the time was right, to implant in her a seed that would sprout and grow and bear a son, a Savior, a Messiah, about whom the Lord had been prophesying literally from the first day of creation to the days of Abraham all the way down to the days of Moses. Oh, beloved, the story of the birth and life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ was never plan B in the mind of God. And I promise you that on this day, on the 48th day after the Passover, God was proposing marriage to Israel, His people, His bride, with Jesus Christ in His mind. I think this will become clearer as we work through the story. Having received these words from the Lord, Moses went down from the mountain and he gathered the, the elders of Israel and he told them all the words of the Lord. And then the elders, together with all the people of Israel, said back to the Lord these words in verse 8. 
They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Essentially, they accepted the proposal of marriage. And with this, they were betrothed to the Lord. So Moses ascended the mountain for a second time, and he reported to the Lord what the people had said, which I find kind of cute, if you will, as if God couldn't hear what the people were saying. But Moses was an intermediary between God and the people. So he went up to the mountain and he told the Lord, yes, they accepted They said, all that you have said, we will do. And with that, the Lord essentially set the wedding date, if you will. He said that in three days, He would visit His people in a thick cloud. And He said that He would speak to Moses audibly out of that cloud in the hearing of the people so that they would forever and ever believe Moses. And I take that to mean so that they would hear God speaking to Moses and believe that His words and authority were not coming from His own flesh but that they were indeed coming from Almighty God. God was about to establish His law, His covenant with His people through Moses, and He was going to, in this way, establish the authority of that covenant and its mediator, Moses, there on the mountain that day. The Lord then further instructed Moses to consecrate Israel, to dress them in clean garments. You see, this is wedding language. And he told them to prepare themselves for the wedding, if you will. He instructed Moses to do this today and tomorrow, which would have been the 48th and 49th days after the Passover. And then he told them to be ready on the third day, for that's when he would come. What is that third day? It's the 50th day after the day of Passover. You know what we call that day? Does anybody know? We call that day the day of Pentecost. The word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50th. And this day on the mountain of Sinai was the first day of Pentecost. Believe me, the Lord had Jesus Christ and His bride, the church, in His mind when He proposed marriage to Israel in Exodus 19, 5-6. God sees the end from the beginning. He does nothing without purpose. And on this first day of Pentecost, he had another day of Pentecost in his mind. I have no doubt about that. With this, the Lord gave Moses one final piece of instruction. Specifically, he told him, I want you to build a barrier around the mountain. And I want you to build it high and strong. Don't let anybody approach this mountain. Don't even let them touch the edge of it. And Moses, if a man or even a beast touches even the edge of this mountain, they are to be killed. They are to be stoned to death or shot through with an arrow. And that might sound harsh, but beloved, it's not. What's going on is that a very unimaginably holy God is preparing to draw near to a sinful people, and that is no small thing. It is no small thing. We in our sinful nature are dulled to the reality of the holiness, the greatness, the grandeur of God. And we don't think it's any big deal to come into His presence, at least in our flesh we don't. We make God very small. We make Him very homely. We domesticate God. But He cannot be domesticated. He is great and mighty and holy beyond description. And He alone has the right to say how He can be approached and how He may not be approached. He alone has the right to enact His rules and to punish when those rules are violated. And so he said, Let no one come near to me, even touch this mountain, and if they do, they shall surely die. Above all things, beloved, God was trying to strike into the hearts of His people that their God is a holy God. Yes, they're betrothed. The Lord God Almighty is good. 
But He is great and holy and mighty, and He is not to be played with. He is not to be dealt with lightly. Having received this instruction from the Lord, Moses descended from the mountain and obeyed the Lord in all these things, and he consecrated the people for two days. And then on the third day, just as the Lord had promised, he appeared on that mountain in great power and great glory. The Bible says that on that day, on the mountain, a cloud descended upon the mountain, thick and dark, and there were lightnings and peals of thunder and a great and blazing fire. And out of that cloud sounded a trumpet so loud that it struck fear to the bones of everyone who heard it in the camp of Israel. But Moses somehow persuaded them to come out of their camp and go to the foot of that mountain and come near to their God, to their Maker, to their soon-to-be husband. If you look there with me in chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It shook, in other words, like an earthquake. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God is everywhere present at all times. There is nowhere in this world that we can flee where God is not. We call this the omnipresence of God. But every once in a while, God manifests His presence in a way that is very unusual, that is impossible to describe with human language, but that shakes the earth and pierces the soul. And that's what happened on this day. I don't know how to explain that God is at once everywhere and specially present in one place at one time. I don't know how that works. I just believe the Bible. And on this day, God came near to His people and it was so powerful that the earth shook and the lightning struck and the thunder rolled and the fire blazed and the smoke rose high, high, high into the sky. The Lord God Almighty had come near and the people and the earth itself trembled. When Moses reached the top of the mountain, the Lord told him to warn the people again not to break through that barrier. God did not want to strike out against the people, so He warned Moses sternly again. But He did tell him, go down and get Aaron and bring Aaron back up on the mountain with you. And Moses, as usual, obeyed the Lord. And when Moses and Aaron had reached again to the top of the mountain, God thundered to him in audible words that could be heard and understood by all of the people in the camp. Those words are what we have come to call the Ten Commandments. They have shaped the history of the world and enlightened the bride of God for centuries. And so the Lord began in chapter 20, verse 2, by saying, I am the I am. You remember that I told you a few weeks ago that when you see that word Lord in your English Bibles, and it's either in all caps or it's in small caps, that means that the Hebrew word Yahweh is behind it. And Yahweh is a word that means I am. All the other gods of the earth are pretenders, but I am. And so in chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the I am, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the I am who delivered you from oppression and suffering and brought you to myself to be a treasured 
people, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy, holy nation. This is the beginning of a wedding ceremony, beloved, as the bridegroom is addressing his bride. And in essence, he says to her, First and foremost, my bride, I call on you to be faithful to me and have no other gods besides me. There are no gods in this earth, not really, but there are pretenders. Do not go after the pretenders, but be faithful to me. You'll remember, if you read the Bible carefully, God is taught every time the people of God stray away from Him and worship other gods, what does He call it? He calls it adultery. Why? Because He's marrying His bride here now and He's saying, Be faithful to Me. Be a faithful bride. Worship Me and worship Me alone. Seconds. Do not carve for yourselves images out of anything you see in heaven or on earth, lest you be tempted to bow down and worship them. For I, your God, your husband, am a jealous God in the sense that I will protect and pursue my bride. And I will punish you for your iniquity, but I will love you beyond measure for your fidelity. So be faithful to me, Israel. Love me. Keep my commandments. And then third, you are to honor my name above all things. And fourth, you are to keep my Sabbath. For in six days I created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day I entered into the joy of everything I had done. And now, my bride, every seventh day, come away with me. Enter into the joy of what I have done. And as you think about your interactions with one another, as you think about living life together as a kingdom of priests in a holy nation, I want you to do six things. First of all, honor your fathers and your mothers because in essence they stand in the place of God. They have had a part in creating you. So respect them for that. Honor them for that. Speak well to them. Speak well of them. And take care of them in their old age. Also, you shall not play God and take the lives of others unless I directly command you to do so. You shall not be unfaithful to one another and break the bonds of holy marriage. For marriage stands as a symbol of my fidelity to you and your fidelity to me. Do not play with marriage, Israel. Do not commit adultery. You shall not steal that which is not yours, but rather you shall look to me for all of your pleasure and your provision. You shall not use your tongue to utter lies, but rather you shall be like your God, like your husband, and speak the truth which always builds up even if it has to pierce. And finally, you shall not covet or envy or long for anything which is your neighbor's. Rather, you shall be faithful to me and trust in me for your pleasure and for your provision. In other words, my precious possession and my bride, the Lord says... I'm calling on you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with everything that's in you. And I'm calling on you to display your love for me by loving one another. Love God and love one another. Beloved, these are the Ten Commandments. These are essentially the wedding vows that God Almighty spoke to His bride with great passion, with great power, and with great promise. When the people who were standing at the foot of the mountain, saw all of these things and felt the trembling in their souls. 
you probably, many of you haven't experienced earthquakes and felt that physical trembling, but I'm sure all of you have felt when the lightning strikes and the thunder rolls strong enough and you feel the shaking even in your body. They felt that, beloved, time and time again, but it wasn't just random shaking, it was words coming from the mouth of God. When they heard and saw all of these things, they feared greatly and they said to Moses, Oh, please, oh, please, You speak to us, but keep God far away from us, lest we die. They were struck to the heart with the greatness of God, the might of God, the holiness of God, and rightfully, they were afraid. But look what Moses said in chapter 20, verse 20. He said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people weren't persuaded So they stayed far away while Moses drew near to the thick cloud where God was. But I want to take a few minutes now and ponder what Moses said because I find it a very powerful and and important lesson for our lives even today. What a strange and glorious answer to the articulation of trembling fear. Moses essentially said to the people of God, do not fear God because God has come to put the fear of God in your heart. Now isn't that strange? Do not fear and fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and do not fear the Lord. It's not fear Him, but do not fear. It is not fear Him, but do not fear Him. It's fear Him and do not fear Him. Both things. And I just want to ask, what does this mean? Jesus taught the same thing in the Gospels, by the way. It was one of the strangest sayings in the Gospels to me. He said, fear Him who can kill the soul and send you to hell. And then just a couple verses later, he says, do not fear him. So here it is in the mouth of Moses. There it is in the mouth of Jesus. Fear and do not fear. And I want to ask why. What does this mean? I think Moses is saying, fear the Lord because he is great, but do not fear him because he is good. Fear the Lord because he is mighty and strong. But do not fear the Lord because He is merciful. Praise be to His name. Fear the Lord because He is powerful. Do not fear the Lord because He is patient. He is steadfast in His love. He doesn't give up easily. And praise God for that. If He gave up easily, I would have been history a long time ago. Fear, because the Lord is a consuming fire and His very presence makes the ground to shake, makes the lightning strike, makes the thunder roll, makes the fire blaze, makes the clouds to rise into the sky. Fear Him, for He is very great. But do not fear Him, because He comes as a consuming fire to take away in us all that is impure. He comes as a consuming fire to make us holy as He is holy. He comes as a loving Father who disciplines us that we might share in His holiness. I'm not making that up. That comes from from Hebrews chapter 12. Yes, our God is a consuming fire, but He comes to consume us for our good. So indeed, fear the Lord and do not fear Him. He is very great. But He is very gracious. He is no small God. But He is on our side if we will only humble ourselves before Him. takes my breath away, beloved, when I think about the fact that this event, this word from the Lord, fear and do not fear, came on the day of the very first Pentecost, the 50th day after the Passover, 
For surely on this day, the Lord looked out into history and saw another day of Pentecost. He saw in His mind the disciples gathered in the upper room praying and waiting in faith on the promised Holy Spirit. He saw the coming of the Holy Spirit which would land upon them in fire, the Bible says. Please don't miss that in Acts 2. It's drawing on Exodus 19 and 20. The Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire, and now the fire went inside the bodies of the disciples. It landed upon them. The Holy Spirit came into them, and He thrust them out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth that they might proclaim the excellencies of God and of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. Look again at 19, 5 through 6. You'll see there that the Lord said, All the earth belonged to Him, but that Israel would be His treasured possession and His bride. So here's how I'm thinking about that. God came in power on Mount Sinai for the good of the nations and the glory of His name. God had the mission to the nations in His mind when He descended upon Sinai. Yes, Israel was His treasured possession, but why? So that she could bear the Messiah, and that one day the Messiah would save from some from Jews and Gentiles alike, and then send them out, thrust them out to the nations where they would also proclaim the Word of God. And that's why Jesus gave us this commandment in Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. And I hope that you're hearing that. The command, the, the covenant is just the same. Teaching them to obey. If only they would obey. And behold, I am with you to the very, very end of the age. And having thus sent His bride into the world, now in Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles alike, He makes us a promise which is nearly identical to His words in Exodus 19. Let me just read for you 1 Peter 2.9. This is a text that from the beginning of our church has been very important to us. Listen to the language. But you, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Beloved, just as it was on Sinai, so it is with us today. The power of God has come near to us in Jesus Christ for the glory of His name and the good of the nations. And He has held out before us a promise that one day as we serve this God, we will come into the presence of Him who strikes lightning and thunder and blazes with fire and causes the thick smoke to rise. We will see Him face to face. Please turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. I want to draw our message to a close with this, but I want to read the whole chapter. So Revelation chapter 4. Please pay careful attention to the language and understand that in Exodus 19 and 20, God was thinking of these things. He sees the end from the beginning. So I'm not reading Jesus into Exodus. Believe me, He's there. And then I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Oh, what a grace that must have been to see that. 
And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a what? Like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what may take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Beloved, I promise you that in Exodus 19 and 20, the Lord God Almighty, thundering from that mountain on the first day of Pentecost, had that other day of Pentecost, that New Testament day in His mind. And He also had this final day in His mind, the consummation of all things, when some people from every tribe and tongue and nation would gather around His throne and also hear the peals of thunder and the strikes of lightning, and they would not be frightened away because the blood of the Lamb, the Holy One, Jesus Christ, would cover them and protect them and invite them right to the very throne room of God. Oh, what a powerful, powerful thing it was in that day. And what a powerful thing it can be in our day as we realize that the power of God has come near to us in Jesus Christ for the good of the nations. He has come near to us to thrust us out into Dunn Brothers and into other parts of Elk River and into every corner of this earth that we might proclaim this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, may the Father fulfill His purposes and plans in and through us. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, I pray that You would confirm the things that have been said today. I pray that as we meditate upon Your Word and upon Your purposes, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to us. I pray that You would come near to us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that You would fill us with fire and passion and power and purpose for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in every corner of this earth. Oh God, please come near and do the things that you have purposed to do in and through your bride, the church. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.